Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What do we have up for today, Taylor? Today we're going to be talking about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings for the Supreme Court. And a lot has been said about this. And in fact, as you listen to this, Kavanaugh has been confirmed as our next Supreme Court justice. In this episode, we want to rewind, take a look back at all of what just happened. There's a lot to break down here, so we split it into two episodes. So today, you're going to hear our take on the Blasey Ford allegation hearings. And our next episode is going to break down what happened in the previous four days of Kavanaugh's confirmation. So we're going to start this episode with listening to Christine Blasey Ford giving her opening statement of how the assault happened to her, and we'll break down some of the nuances of her communication. And then after we hear that, we're going to move into both what Republicans and Democrats did in her in their questioning of her. So let's go ahead and take a listen. When I got to the small gathering, people were drinking beer in a small living room, family room type area on the first floor of the house. I drank one beer. Brett and Mark were visibly drunk. Early in the evening, I went up a very narrow set of stairs leading from the living room to a second floor to use the restroom. When I got to the top of the stairs, I was pushed from behind into a bedroom across from the bathroom. I couldn't see who pushed me. Brett and Mark came into the bedroom and locked the door behind them. There was music playing in the bedroom. It was turned up louder by either Brett or Mark once we were in the room. I was pushed onto the bed and Brett got on top of me. He began running his hands over my body and grinding into me. I yelled hoping that someone downstairs might hear me. And I tried to get away from him, but his weight was heavy. Brett groped me and tried to take off my clothes. He had a hard time because he was very inebriated and because I was wearing a one-piece bathing suit underneath my clothing. I believed he was going to rape me. I tried to yell for help. When I did, Brett put his hand over my mouth to stop me from yelling. This is what terrified me the most and has had the most lasting impact on my life. It was hard for me to breathe, and I thought that Brett was accidentally going to kill me. Both Brett and Mark were drunkenly laughing during the attack. They seemed to be having a very good time. Mark seemed ambivalent, at times urging Brett on and at times telling him to stop. A couple of times I made eye contact with Mark, 
and thought he might try to help me, but he did not. What makes this such a powerful statement from Ford is the way you can hear her emotion coming out in her speech. From the beginning, when she's talking about more comfortable stuff in her opening statement, it's a very rapid pace. It's a very, you know, good clip, and she's moving from point to point. But as soon as she hits that moment where she starts talking about the event, her voice immediately slows down. She begins choking on her words. And you can almost hear it in her voice as she's emotionally reliving the event right there in front of all of the senators in all of America. Yeah, and what happens as she is saying this story, okay, she's telling the tale of how it all happened and how it all went, is that you hear her emphasizing certain parts of it, and you hear her voice being as the the thing that's revealing what she's feeling inside. So certain details, you know, that she says, like she, you know, she goes into, I was pushed from behind, um, that particular detail from the way in which she says it, it's almost like she said it, you know, multiple times, or perhaps she's been interviewed with that multiple times. But then when she gets to this point where she talks about there was music playing in the bedroom, okay, then her voice really cracks up. And so this is when we think about um, the idea of, okay, is this a account something which is truthful? Is this account something that is, you know, honest? Is it believable? Listening to the way in which she's saying this, the fact that she has such a visible reaction to these really small details, okay, and they're not even the the legal details or the details that other people might really care about, but they're details that are based in sensory and emotional experience. In other words, the her brain has linked this in as th- this is what's happening and, you know, there's music. That's such a little small thing, but that's what sticks in a person's mind. Right. Her voice starts cracking when she starts talking about the music. Like that's that trigger moment, that snap moment that brings her like right back to that situation. And you can hear that because that's what the brain grabs onto. Yeah. She talks about the small living room um, that, you know, Brett was so inebriated. Right. Like there's there's this sense of um, she's she's going back into the moment and she's actually recalling those details and as she's goes is in those details it affects her emotionally. So, you know, it's it's definitely something where she is experiencing as she's going through it again. And one of the things that we really emphasize in training of uh, neurolinguistics and hypnosis is something called sensory acuity. So it's the ability to use the senses with precision. It's the ability to listen deeper than other people listen, to see deeper than other people necessarily will see. And so you listen to the difference in how she says some words and not others. And, you know, it's just it's amazing as you listen to this and you can get a feeling inside of yourself of, okay, this this is really something that she's going through. This is something she is stepping into right in that moment. And it, it certainly doesn't feel too good to her as she's doing it. And that's the thing, too, is that, like, as you said, somebody who is not telling the truth does not go through these same emotional processes when they're retelling the story. It's very difficult to bring yourself into an emotional state like that on cue, let alone at the right moment. So somebody who might be very good at at 
lying or, or bringing up certain emotions at certain times might think logically about what points at which to bring out those emotions. But what we see with her is that these are coming out at those moments where she's pointing out the tiny details and and getting really vivid with it as opposed to the broad strokes of, you know, then he was on top of me and then that's when she goes into the emotional state. No, she's going into it as she's in her mind saying, oh my God, the moment is approaching. This is the next thing that's going to happen. And there it is. Yeah, and I think this is even more vivid as you listen to it, just the audio versus seeing the audio and the video and the uh, the, the picture image. It's much more vivid because you can clearly hear exactly those moments that she's going into it. And, uh, you know, yeah, she does go into those into those details. And so, you know, I just wonder if this were, you know, broadcast as audio only would, you know, even more people have, have believed her and to say, hey, this is this is a truthful account. So now let's get to the actual questioning from the senators. And we'll start off with Richard Blumenthal, who's the ranking member, the ranking Democrat on the committee. There's been some talk about you're requesting an FBI investigation. And you mentioned a point just a few minutes ago that you could better estimate the time that you ran into Mark Judge if you knew the time that he was working at that supermarket. That's a fact that could be uncovered by an FBI investigation that would help further elucidate your account. Would you like Mark Judge to be interviewed in connection with the background investigation and the serious, credible allegations that you've made? That would be my preference. I'm not sure it's really up to me, but I certainly would feel like I could be more helpful to everyone if I knew the date that he worked at the Safeway so that I could give a a more specific date of the assault. Well, it's not up to you. It's up to the President of the United States. And his failure to ask for an FBI investigation, in my view, is tantamount to a cover-up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, so what we hear here is, again, that type of persuasive speech where he's asking a question, but even as he asks the question to her, and, you know, she truthfully answers the question, but it really, you know, it's, it's something where he sets it up, she answers the question, and then he uses that to make a point. It's not up to me, she says. That's right. It's up to the president. And he has failed to ask for an FBI investigation. That's tantamount to a cover-up. And before anyone else can even say anything, he says, you know, thank you, I'm done. And so it's it's this, you hear this a lot with these congressional testimonies where someone is asking a question, they get just enough of what they need, and then they go on to then make their point. We're going to hear this a little bit later on as we go into a, a clip um, by Kamala Harris and uh, she does something, you know, kind of similar with this. Yeah. And that's really what uh, what it's all about. Richard Blumenthal planned this right from the beginning that he knew what she was going to say and knew that he was teeing up a moment for him to strike it out of the ballpark. He gave her the question. He presumably knows her temperament and knows that she's going to respond truthfully in you know a very calm and polite and respectful voice 
And then he's ready to sort of snap back, but really at the president and come back with this really sharp response. Like, that's right. It's not up. And this is why we should be angry. Um, and, and really turns it around so that you have that contrast between this very truthful, innocent, victimized person and then the and now it's the president's fault. So let's get to the next clip. And this is where we start hearing from the prosecutor, Miss Mitchell. And what is really interesting, and I want you to hear this, is that she may not have been the best person to ask these questions. She came out very mild-mannered and and very calm and very serene, which is great if you are a sex crime prosecutor, but perhaps not so great from the standpoint of the Republicans who want to try and catch her in a lie or or you know make her out to be a villain. That might not be the greatest strategy. And so what you see is this contrast between Miss Mitchell just making her sound even more credible than she already sounded because she was already pretty credible. Mitchell's amplifying that. And then you've got the back and forth with the Democrats because none of the Republicans are talking. And the Democrats are making her sound even better. So let's start listening to some of her questions. Based on the advice of the council, I was happy to undergo the polygraph test, although I found it extremely stressful, much longer than I anticipated. I told my whole life story, I felt like, but I endured it. It was fine. I understand they can be that way. Um, Have you ever taken any other polygraphs in your life? Never. Okay. Um, You went to see a gentleman by the name of Jeremiah Hannafin uh, to serve as the polygrapher. Did anyone advise you on that choice? Yes, I believe his name was Jerry. Uh, Jerry Hannafin. Yeah. Okay. Did anyone advise you on that choice? I don't understand that. Yeah, I didn't choose him myself. He was the uh, person that came to do the polygraph test. Okay. Um, he actually conducted the polygraph not in his office in Virginia, but actually at the hotel next to Baltimore Washington Airport. Is that right? Correct. Why was that location chosen for the polygraph? I had left my grandmother's funeral at uh, Fort Lincoln Cemetery that day and was Uh, on tight schedule to get a plane to Manchester, New Hampshire. So he was willing to come to me, which was appreciated. So he administered a polygraph on the day that you attended your grandmother's funeral? Yeah, correct. Or it might have been the next day. I spent the night in the hotel. So I Um, remember the exact day. Have you ever had discussions with anyone uh, besides your attorneys on how to take a polygraph? Never. And I don't just mean countermeasures, but I mean just any sort of tips or anything like that. No, I was scared of the test itself, but was comfortable that I could tell the information and the test would reveal whatever it was going to reveal. 
I didn't expect it to be as long as it was going to be, so it was a little bit stressful. Have you ever given tips or advice to somebody who was looking to take a polygraph test? Never. Okay. Did you pay for the polygraph yourself? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Do you know who did pay for the polygraph? Not yet, no. So here we hear uh, Miss Mitchell asking her about the polygraph, and this seems like this was a pre-planned strategy by the this prosecutor who had been um, hired by the Republicans to come and do this. And what she's really doing here is she's trying to attack the various parts of the credibility of uh, Christine Blasey Ford. Like she's trying to go, she's trying to go after her credibility. So. She's going after the polygraph. So have you ever taken a polygraph before? Do you know any countermeasures? Do you know any tips about how to give a polygraph? Do you know how to tell someone to defeat a polygraph? <laughs> and so the way in which she says it sounds just very like calm and mild mannered and as if it's just unassuming and like I'm not really asking anything big. I'm just gathering evidence. But think about what she's trying to build up here. She's trying to build up this idea that the polygraph doesn't mean anything. Right. Yeah. She's trying to build in that doubt that there is such countermeasures and there are tips and there are ways that you could, if you were smart enough, trick the polygraph test. What's also interesting here, though, is that to the average viewer, uh, you might be wondering what in the world is she getting at? And uh, all those questions bubbling up in your head, what, what could possibly be going on? And and Ford really knocks it out of the park here by just being so innocent and unassuming and shrugging her shoulders and, and really coming across as, I have no idea what you're talking about, in such a believable way. And I'll point out one thing that I see here. If you watch her eye movements as she's saying this, what she does is her eyes dart down, down and to her right which is typically where eyes would move if they're trying to think back to how they were feeling at the time and, and what sort of emotions that they were going through. And so you see here, she is talking about her feelings going into the polygraph test and you know what that was like. And she's immediately, she's not going to any parts of her brain where she could be constructing things that she's going to say or make something up. She's going back and reliving that and remembering what it was like to be scared in front of the polygrapher. And it just comes off so innocent and so benign and so believable that it really just, this line of questioning, I think, just undermines the Republicans' point of view. Yeah, and the grandmother's funeral, you know, obviously makes it it a lot more... So in this next clip, what we're going to hear is more of Miss Mitchell trying to do that. So it's it's really it's not only attacking Blazy Ford, but it's also going after what is perceived to be who put her in that chair. So in this next one, she's going to be going after some of the Democrats who actually, you know, supposedly uh, put her in in that place. And uh, in particular, uh, Diane Feinstein's office. So let's go ahead and take a listen to this one. Dr. Ford. In choosing attorneys, did anyone help you with the choice on who to choose? Um, Various people uh, referred me to lawyers that they knew in the Washington, D.C. area. So as you know, I grew up in this area, so I asked um, some family members and friends, uh, 
and they would they referred me to like divorce attorneys that might know somebody that might know somebody and uh, I ended up interviewing several law firms from the DC area. And did anybody besides friends and family refer you to any attorneys? Um, I think that uh, the staff of Diane Feinstein's office suggested the possibility of some attorneys. Okay. Including the two that are sitting on either side of you? Not both of them, no. Okay. Um, we've heard a lot about FBI investigations. Mm -hmm. um, when did you personally first request an FBI investigation? And here we've got Miss Mitchell coming to Ford with some questions that are getting to that idea that maybe there's a little bit more to the story. Maybe she's set up and coached and people are helping her. And she does a really good job, actually, of responding very directly and answering, you know, concisely to the point. So I think that there might be a little bit more here to what she's actually saying but she does a great job of answering without saying too much. And we hear here this idea of Blazy Ford actually requesting the investigation. We hear this idea of, well, which attorneys did you choose? Oh, well, you know, Feinstein's office might have helped me to choose one. Were they the ones on either side of you? So it's this way of almost painting this democratic conspiracy that in order to have to be there, in order to have actual counsel, for this hearing that it somehow is because of these the in these congressional offices that are you know pushing this agenda forward and so it's really subtle but notice in which ways that Miss Mitchell again directed by the Republicans that she's representing in that uh, moment in time is starting to narrate this story a little bit in, in this direction she's narrating it into this point of well, who requested the FBI investigation? Who chose your attorneys? How did the polygraph happen? As if any of this is actually relevant to the accusations which are being made, right? None of it's relevant. Right. She's using ad hominem attacks right there saying that, you know, you're very well coached and very well prepared. Therefore, this can't be an organic statement from you. And that's wholly not necessary but it does put that extra bit of doubt into someone's mind and what's interesting though is that honestly i think it allows both sides to claim a little bit of a victory here the republicans can grapple onto that and say look she was set up by the democrats and kavanaugh did just that in the next episode you'll hear kavanaugh say things just like that but from her You've got something that all the Democrats can cling to that she answers so innocently and so in such a limited way that the Democrats can point to it and say, you know, see, like she has no idea what you're talking about. She was just helped just like anybody else would be helped and was a reluctant witness to begin with. And so in this line of questioning here, in my, in my personal opinion, I think sort of comes out of at a draw both sides can believe whatever they want about it but it is important because it does provide room for either side to believe what they want let's take a break from the hearing for a second we're trying something new this week now since the kavanaugh hearings are going to be a multi-episode series 
We wanted to get your feedback first on this week's episode. Send us your questions, your ideas, your thoughts about Kavanaugh and Ford. And then next week, when we get to the second half of this episode, we'll read some of the best questions on the air, answer them, and give some feedback. So think about what is it that you thought was interesting about Kavanaugh or Ford? What did you think about the senator's questioning? Did you have questions about who might be lying or were the moments of deceit that either person could be presenting? All of those things and more we'll be ready to answer two weeks from now on the next episode of Subliminally Correct. Now, let's get on to this next clip where we start talking about her other experiences with Kavanaugh. Um, Can you describe all of the other social interactions that you had with Mr. Kavanaugh? Uh, briefly, yes, I can. There were uh, during freshman and sophomore year, particularly so- my sophomore year, which would have been his junior year of high school, uh, four to five parties that my friends and I attended that were attended also by him. Okay. Did anything happen at these events to, like we're talking about? Besides the time we're talking about? You, you can answer that question, then I'll go to Senator Harris. Go ahead and answer that question. There was no sexual assault at any of those events. Is that what you're asking? Yes. Yes, those were just parties. Or anything inappropriate yeah. is what I'm well, asking. Maybe we can go into more detail when there's more time. I feel time pressure on that question. Okay. Yeah. Senator. I'm happy to answer in further detail if you want me to. I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead and finish answering your question. Oh, okay. Um, uh, did you want me to describe those parties? Um, or should we leave this to the next round, Mr. Chairman? Uh, answer the question. I'm just happy to describe them if you wanted me to, and I'm happy to not. It's just whatever you want. So here's what we hear about this is that the prosecutor is asking her a question that's a little bit vague, right? Did anything happen at these events like we're talking about? And what happens is that at this moment in the clip, if you if you look at the the picture of it, Blazy Ford actually looks confused. She looks like she doesn't really know how to answer that. And then uh, Chuck Grassley jumps in and he says, you can answer that question. Then I'll get to Senator Harris. Go ahead and answer that question like he's ordering her almost to answer the question. And uh, then she says, well, you know, there's no sexual harassment, if that's what you mean. And then she says, I felt time pressure on that question. And um, what happens is just this going back and forth. They're kind of rattling her a little bit. And it's just it's interesting to hear how even though maybe Chuck Grassley thinks that he's being permissive, he's definitely being more authoritative or uh, really directive, uh, perhaps without even realizing how much he's doing that and and pressuring her to go forward. Right. And. You kind of have to wonder what is she what in the world is Mitchell really trying to get to with these questions at this moment? Uh, honestly, I think that she's alluding to the other accusers and uh, because one of the other accusers said that this was routine and that Kavanaugh was constantly at these parties where um, all of the sexual abuse happened at every single party. And what she's sort of setting up Ford to say is that, no, I never 
you know, interacted with Kavanaugh at anything like that. Those other things, as far as I know, didn't happen. And so I, I, I don't know if that's maybe the best line of thinking that I can construe from this. But it does certainly, again, provide that little bit of doubt for, you know, the Republicans or people who believe Kavanaugh to cling on to and to, again, believe that narrative. Yeah. And these questions are meant to inspire doubt. It's like you say that, you know, she she says the question in a way of setting up maybe the response and setting up then a further line of questioning. And, you know, all of that is well and good, but it does seem like that uh, Miss Mitchell here is actually formulating a story of her own. And she's formulating and framing this in a particular way, just through these subtle little questions, just framing it in that way. Like, let me ask you a little bit about this and a little bit about that. And what's, you know, amazing about this is how Blasey Ford, you know, manages to continue to just stay really truthful, not overextend, not underextend. So, you know, when we compare, for example, Blasey Ford's testimony with someone like, like the episode we did on Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like, you know, Zuckerberg was completely, um, now it's a different type of hearing, of course, you know, completely different. But in terms of answering the questions, Zuckerberg's kind of held it in really, really tight. Blazy Ford does a really, really good job here of kind of balancing that. Like she's answering the question. She's just saying it as it is. And at the same time, she's not letting herself walk in any traps, which is which is really quite uh, interesting. What also struck me about all of this was the idea that this is a prosecutor and she's probably very used to a courtroom where you can interview a witness on the stand and ask all of these questions to introduce doubt in the jury's mind. But then you've got a closing. Then you've got a whole closing statement that you can tie all of this together and paint a new narrative, one where everything makes sense in a different light. But you don't get that in these hearings. And at the end of it, we're left with, oh, there's some doubt, but the only clear narrative that was presented was Ford's. And that's what we're left with. And and Mitchell never gets that. Yeah. And so we're going to hear now uh, the last clip that we have of Mitchell and then we're going to go on to the Democrats. And so what this last clip is, is that Mitchell is going to be asking questions again, supposedly asking questions in order to get information. But what Mitchell's actually going to be doing is setting up the a big doubt in the way that the whole process been ha- handled. So let's go ahead and uh, and listen to this, and you know she gets into some of uh, Blasey Ford's technical expertise as well. Senator Harris just questioned you from the Maricopa County Protocol on Sexual Assault. That that's the paper she was holding up. Um, are you aware that? And you know I've I've been really impressed today because you've talked about norepinephrine and cortisol and what we call in the profession um, basically the neurobiological effects of trauma. Have you also um, educated yourself on the best way to get to um, memory and truth in terms of interviewing victims of trauma? For me, interviewing victims of trauma? No, the best way to do it, the, the best practices for interviewing victims of trauma. No. 
Um, would you believe me if I told you that there's no study that says that this setting in five-minute increments is the best way to do that? <laughs> we'll stipulate for we that. We can stipulate <laughs> Thank you, counsel. Agreed. Um, did you know that the best way to do it is to have a trained interviewer talk to you one-on-one -on -one in a private setting and to let you do the talking, just let you do a narrative? Did you know that? That makes a lot of sense. Does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yes. And then to follow up, obviously to fill in the details and, and ask for clarification. Does that make sense as well? Yes. And, and the research is done by a lot of people in the child abuse field. Uh, two of the more prominent ones in the sexual assault field are Giesel and Fisher, who've talked about it. And it's called a cognitive interview. This is not a cognitive interview. Um, did anybody ever advise you from Senator Feinstein's office or from Representative Eshoo's office to go get a forensic interview? No. Instead, you were advised to get an attorney and take a polygraph. Is that right? This is really interesting because what we see is Mitchell coming in and trying to build a rapport and then really, you know, digging in the claws. We've got her starts off by complimenting her and how impressed she is with the norepinephrine and the cortisol. And then asks her if she's ever been educated on the best way to get memory and truth in interviewing victims of trauma. And, right. of course, she steps back and is confused. And I don't know what you're talking about. And then she goes in. Yeah, it's almost like they're asking her for her expertise as a psychological professor, as a psychology professor. They're asking her for her expertise. But, and so she asks, you know, do you mean me interviewing people? And what she's saying here is, hey, you're, you're not advised on the proper way to do this. So instead of submitting to a, a cognitive interview, and she says dismissively, you got a lawyer and you took a polygraph. Right. As if like that's that's really not enough. OK, that instead of having the interview in California, we're having it here in five minute increments. And so we hear this. This in a way is a bit of a summation or it is a bit of a way of making a point that she changes her voice tone to suggest that, you know, all of those ideas can just be dismissed because that's not the proper way to do it. And supposedly science says that this is the proper way to do it, and we're not following that protocol, and because we're not following the protocol of science, then it must be that something is wrong with the way this is being done. Now, she doesn't outright call her a liar, but what is she implying here? She's implying that her memory and truth may have been distorted. That's, you know, fairly close. But you know what really like undermines this whole thing is just the the moments of like sheer earnestness that comes out of Ford. When she's asked by Mitchell, have you ever educated yourself on the best way for you to get memory and truth in interviewing victims of trauma? Ford comes back with, what, you mean me interviewing people? And has this like befuddled like misunderstanding of the question that is just so... Uh, incredibly charming and endearing and really uh, for me at least it brings me much more onto her side of this person couldn't tell a lie even if she tried yeah we definitely hear that throughout the whole interview and is that you know Ford actually has this very kind of calm 
somewhat meek, almost a, a kind of mousy type of voice or that that kind of very low squeaky voice, which, you know, I've been told is actually something that can happen a lot with victims of trauma. And, you know, when a person has that, she just has this kind of an unassuming nature that she's up, she's here in this hearing and she's just there to tell her story. And um, it's it's really helping her in this situation because being in a, a an environment where it's all spin, where it's all persuasion, where everyone's trying to make a point, and then she's just kind of answering the question and kind of taking her, you know, ego or anything about herself just out of it, uh, really endears a lot of people to her point. I think. All right, now let's get to the Democrats, and we've got Cory Booker. And then in a few minutes, Kamala Harris. Let's hear what they have to say. To some expense, you've had to deal with incredible challenges. And what's amazing, and I want to join my colleagues in thanking you for your courage and bravery in coming forward, all to help us deal with one of the most important obligations a senator has, to advise and consent on one of the branches of our government, the highest courts in the land, an individual going before a lifetime appointment. And you even said that the president had a lot of folks on that list. And your fear was that this individual who assaulted you would ascend to that seat. That's correct, right? Correct. Yes. And it is correct that you have given a lot of resources, taken a lot of threats to come forward, correct? Correct. Assaults on your dignity and your humanity? Absolutely. How has it affected your children? They're doing fairly well, considering. Thank you for asking. And your husband? Doing fairly well, considering. Yeah, thank you. Thank, we have a very supportive community. That's good to hear. Um, I, I want to use a different word for your courage, um, because this is more, as much as this hearing is about a, a Supreme Court justice, the reality is, is by you coming forward, your courage, you are affecting the culture of our country. Um, we have... Uh, a, a wonderful nation, an incredible culture, but there are dark elements that allow unconscionable levels of, unacceptable levels of sexual assault and harassment that are affecting girls and boys and affecting men and women from uh, big media outlets to corporations to factory floors to servers and restaurants to our intimate spaces and homes and apartments all around this country. I stepped out during the break and was deluged with uh, notes from friends all around the country, social media posts, that there are literally hundreds of thousands of people watching your testimony right now. And, and note after note that I got, people in tears, feeling pain and anguish, not just feeling your pain, but feeling their own, who have not come forward. You are opening up to open air hurt and pain that goes on across this country. And for that, the word I would use, it's nothing short of heroic. Because what you're doing for our nation right now, besides giving testimony germane to one of the most sacred obligations of our offices, is you are speaking truth that this country needs to understand. And how we deal with survivors who come forward right now is unacceptable. And the way we deal with this, unfortunately, allows for the continued darkness of this culture to exist. And your brilliance shining light under this, speaking your truth is nothing short of heroic. So here, Cory Booker is really going into his inspirational mode. Now, he asks her a couple of questions. He asks her, so this has happened. 
Yes, it has. So that's happened. Yes, it has. How is your children? How are your children? How is your husband? How are they doing? They're they're doing good considering they're doing good considering. So he's he's doing this as a rapport building technique. Um, obviously, he already knows that you know the answers are fairly predictable in terms of what she's actually going to say. And as he then you know does that, he he moves into this inspirational type of language. Now he's not using the inspirational voice tone like we may have heard like Obama uh, say in the past or you know some other politicians. However, the way in which he's framing this is being able to find the light, drawing the light out of that darkness. And in fact, as Booker continues to talk, uh, Blazy Ford actually becomes on the verge of tears. Okay, she's just slowly nodding her head and you can just see her like she's just about to break down. And so it, it really calls attention to the fact that, well, when I see this, you know, I, I look at it and I go, you know, Cory Booker actually has a lot of potential to have that inspirational you know, message to him. A lot of people have floated this idea of him being a potential you know, 2020 pick, and we really hear it here. We hear him being able to bring in that inspiration, bring in that, that sense of thematic messaging, talking about what does it actually mean to be a survivor? What does it mean to be an American? How is our system working, and how is it not working, and how can it be improved? Right. And he's bringing contrast to all of those heartless Republicans and all the people attacking her. And really, you know, this is what grownups do. This is what, you know, leaders of our country do is they're more concerned about taking care of the victim and asking how this person is doing as opposed to attacking their credibility, like perhaps Ms. Mitchell and a lot of the news media and the Republicans. And so, it's sort of an unspoken contrast that I think is just brilliant. And now we're going to listen to another potential 2020 uh, person who's campaigning, Kamala Harris. And she also has this way of being inspirational. She also has this way of doing it. Um, but we notice now, okay, how is it for a woman to be delivering this message? How does she do it a little bit differently? Let's go ahead and take a listen to some of what she has to say. And so I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your courage. And I want to tell you, I believe you. I believe you. And I believe many Americans across this country believe you. And what I find striking about your testimony is you remember key searing details of what happened to you. You told your husband and therapist, two of the most intimate of your confidants, and you told them years ago about this assault. You have shared your experience with multiple friends years after that and before these hearings ever started. I know, having personally prosecuted sexual assault cases and child sexual assault cases, that study after study shows trauma, shame, and the fear of consequences almost always cause survivors to, at the very least, delay reporting if they ever report at all. Police recognize that. Prosecutors recognize that. Medical and mental health professionals recognize that. The notes from your therapy sessions were created long before this nomination and corroborate what you have said today. You have passed a polygraph, polygraph and submitted the results to this committee. Judge Kavanaugh has not. You have called for outside witnesses to testify and for expert witnesses to testify. Judge Kavanaugh has not. 
But most importantly, you have called for an independent FBI investigation into the facts. Judge Kavanaugh has not. And we owe you that. We owe the American people that. And let's talk about why this is so important. Contrary to what has been said today, the FBI does not reach conclusions. The FBI investigates. It interviews witnesses, gathers facts, and then presents that information to the United States Senate for our consideration and judgment. This committee knows that, in spite of what you have been told. In 1991, during a similar hearing, one of my rep Republican colleagues in this committee stated these claims were taken seriously by having the Federal Bureau of Investigations launch an inquiry to determine their validity. The FBI fulfilled its duty and issued a confidential report. Well, that could have and should have been done here. This morning, it was said that this could have been investigated confidentially back in July. But this also could have been investigated in the last 11 days since you came forward, yet that has not happened. The FBI could have interviewed Mark Judge, Patrick Smith, Leland, Leland Kaiser, you and Judge Kavanaugh on these issues. The FBI could have examined various maps that have been presented by the prosecutor who stands in for the United States Senators on this committee. The FBI could have gathered facts about the music or the conversation or any other details about the gathering that occurred that evening. That is standard procedure in a sexual assault case. In fact, the manual that is, was signed off by Ms. Mitchell, the manual that is posted on the Maricopa County Attorney's website as a guiding principle and best practices for what should happen with sexual assault cases, highlights the details of what should happen in terms of the need for an objective investigation into any sexual assault case. It says, quote, effective investigation requires cooperation with a multidisciplinary team that includes medical professionals, victim advocates, dedicated forensic interviewers, criminalists, and other law enforcement members. The manual also stresses the importance of obtaining outside witness information. You have bravely come forward. You have bravely come forward. And I want to thank you because you clearly have nothing to gain for what you have done. You have been a true patriot in fighting for the best of who we are as a country. I believe you are doing that because you love this country. And I believe history will show that you are a true profile in courage at this moment in time in the history of our country. And I thank you. Yeah, what's interesting here is that it's clear that the Democrats were really planning on making this hearing all about how brave she is and how proud they are of her and how we need to take care of and uh, people in these circumstances and launch investigations and the injustice, the horrible injustice. What is not here is a lot of questions, which, you know, really what the hearing is all about, of course, is to question and investigate. And so we see people like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris stand up and do their platitude that sounds a lot like the running for president of the United States. Yeah, and they are because they know that everyone is, is listening at that moment and they know that this is this is the time that they need to make it really clear, you know, what they what they stand for. 
So we hear here uh, several devices that Kamala Harris is using. So, you know, we hear this idea again of belief. Okay, I believe you. I believe many across this country believe you. And she starts this idea of a pacing statement and a leading statement. And here's what I mean by that. She says things that Ford is likely to be true or that that is already true in the record. And, you know, Kamala Harris is creating a record. So she's making eye contact with Ford, but she's actually talking to the camera. She's talking to the people listening. So you've done this. You've taken a polygraph. Brett Kavanaugh has not. You've called for an FBI investigation. Brett Kavanaugh has not. And so she's setting up this duality, like you're the good one, he's the bad one, you have this idea here, and, and it's it's even less about forward and it's more about this is what the Republicans are doing wrong, this is what we're doing right, this is what hasn't been you know put into the process, this is what we can put in the process if only we were allowed to do the common sense thing. And so, you know, we hear both part, both sides talking about how the way that this went down was, you know, not right. So we, we've heard, you know, Miss Mitchell talk for so long about, you know, picking apart the little details of how Ford actually appeared and her testimony. And now we hear Booker and uh, Harris actually breaking down and saying, hey, we don't have an investigation. Um, we don't have a polygraph on his part. Even though, you know, something like a polygraph, it, it's really a funny thing because, you know, polygraphs, of course, are not admissible in court. And at one point in the Kavanaugh hearings, he actually says that. Um, and, you know, if, if people want someone to pass a polygraph, then it's all of a sudden, hey, we need the polygraph. But if they don't want the polygraph to be admitted, then they're making the case that something with the polygraph was wrong. And so, you know, we hear this this idea of, you know, lie detection and you know, just just for the record, you know, here on the show, right, a polygraph doesn't actually detect deceit on any one question. It just detects deceit in general across the whole polygraph. That's how that's how it works. So, you know, as we're hearing her, you know, going through um, this type of it's really a speech, right, that she's giving about the about the whole thing, reflection upon the whole thing. We got the predictable response, which is that a lot of news outlets actually reported on Kamala Harris's testimony, even though she wasn't asking many questions, which, you know, again, I agree with Alex. That's exactly what they should have been doing here. Yeah. And so we end up with a situation where Mitchell is coming at her with relatively calm demeanor, very benign, not really making those big, you know, summations, those overarching points. And then we've got the Democrats who are given this platform to, you know, uh, make her sound even more credible than Mitchell's questions even did because of the the innocent and earnest ways that they were answered. And so really, we couldn't have asked for uh, a better hearing for the Democrats because that's exactly what they got. There are no situations, no other witnesses that I can imagine that could have been better than her for the Democrats. And I think that the Republicans were, you know, who knows what they were expecting from this, but I don't think it was this. Well, they definitely didn't want it to come, come through. Now here's, here's a question, Alex, like, do you think that having the woman prosecutor, you know, Miss Mitchell was a good idea for the Republicans or was it because they were in kind of a no, no win situation. You know, if it's a bunch of, 
you know, old white guys questioning a woman about whether she told the truth on a sexual assault, you know, um, allegation, then, well, that that's not really something that they wanted to be appear to be doing. So what do you think? Was, was it in benefit for them or not? Well, here's the thing, right? It could have been, but they just got a bad prosecutor. <laughs> they got Miss Mitchell, who, uh, honestly, they should have just had Miss Mitchell asked the questions that the senators would have asked rather than uh, running off with her own uh, narratives and line of questions. Like if the Republicans really wanted to get a platform um, to to grandstand and tell their side of the story, then they should have had her do that as opposed to what she ended up doing, which is ask questions like they were in a courtroom and never actually get any any overarching story told. Yeah, and at the beginning of Kamala Harris's um, conversation, she actually says, you are not on trial here. And it's funny that she has to say that, but yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. When you have a prosecutor talking for all the Republicans, what is she trying to do? She's trying to prosecute, right? She's trying to find out what, what are the parts that aren't true? What, you know, what can we find to call doubt into this whole thing? But obviously, the prosecutor is only prosecuting for one side. You know, what about the other side? Now, that gets me to my next point here. What was really baffling, and this made this hearing with her made a lot of sense. But what really got me was how they had uh, Mitchell talk to Kavanaugh on the next day. And Mitchell was still asking the questions to him. And that just seems like a giant strategic error and so much so that we all know Lindsey Graham took the gavel back and started uh, uh, speaking instead. And then all the Republicans piled on and, uh, you know, sort of threw Mitchell to the wayside. And if you want to hear what we think of that, you'll have to tune in next week. Yeah, tune in for the next episode where we're going to be actually breaking down all of the other things that happened in this Kavanaugh hearing. This was just one day, and actually there was a huge amount of persuasion tactics, techniques that were being used, you know, from all of our favorite, you know, politicians that we like to highlight here on the podcast and even more, you know, to uh, to get into it. And so that concludes our episode for today. And, you know, if you really are enjoying the show, if you like listening to this type of stuff, please remember to check out our Patreon page, right? The Patreon page, there's a link to it right at the bottom of the show notes. So if you just scroll down, you're going to click on that Patreon link and you can you can uh, subscribe to the Patreon and actually just buy us a cup of coffee, right? Support the show. We really, really appreciate your support. Please remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, if you haven't subscribed to the Patreon, another way you can really help us here on the show, simply retweet the show here to all of your friends, your followers. That, again, is really awesome. Let us know what you think, who you'd like to see on the show. And with that, we'll see you next time. 